As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and now look back upon match day three of the Champions League. It was a match day in which Ronaldo delivered a blow to the Italianos whose defending was a no-show. But would you know? Kilian was the man despite shooting his penalty over Notre Dame or Notre Dame if you want to pronounce it all lame. But that would be a shame. <laughs> and Mauro Icardi wasn't the only one to suffer a wonder blunder as Liverpool embarrassed the Spanish champions like a PSG forward embarrassing his wife by sliding into the DMs of an Argentine model. Woo! My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who follows more than one person on Instagram, Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> I do indeed. It took me a minute to remember what you were referencing. And I was like, is that is that a thing that happened in the news this week? And then I remembered Mario Accardi. The way to his wife's heart is by unfollowing everybody but her. We know we know this. It's a story as old as time. So, Taylor, I did introduce this show as a Champions League show, but I have to admit the bulk of it is going to be about more recovery. I am, just brace yourself, I am concerned okay? that you've gone to it so quickly that you are not going to introduce <laughs> the other co-hosts for like 15 minutes. Oh, there's other co-hosts, right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> On that note, here is a man who may or may not have been the pitch invader who tried to grab Ronaldo at full-time at Old Trafford, Graham Ruffin. Was it you? Uh, no, that's probably not the United player that I would go for if I was going to storm the Old Trafford pitch, but I already feel time pressure here because we're robbing Ryan of uh, Wanda Maracardi chat. So back to you, Ryan. <laughs> man, I... I I know that we're trying to get to that story. That pitch invader made me laugh so hard because that like if I were a pitch invader, I think I would envision that scenario when you get to the player and they're like, "Oh no, let him stay. I'll hug him. I'll take a selfie. Here's my jersey." And I have to believe that that's what that guy was thinking. And he got to Ronaldo, and Ronaldo like moved his arm away, and then was just like, "Huh, that was funny," and just kept on walking as that guy. I'm assuming got tackled by six different people all at once. Yeah, uh, brutal but funny. I'm I'm enjoying the start of the show, Ryan. I can't wait to talk about Wanda. It was one of those moments that was scary for a millisecond. I, I do agree yeah. there. Um, we will get to keeping up with the Kardashians, but um, Graham, <laughs> I need to know which player you would go for if it wasn't Ronaldo. Um, I mean, it's a tough call between McSauce, yep, or uh, Marcus Rashford for obvious reasons. I'm still, you know, I'm still going to go with McSauce. Marcus Rashford, you need to do some more charity to get a hug from me as a pitch invader. <laughs> Vader. Yeah, Scotty Tommy. <laughs> Well, Ollie thinks he needs to do less charity, doesn't he? Maybe we can talk about that <laughs> later as well, Graham. Um, and introducing the final member of our team, last but not least, a man who would never run down the tunnel without shaking the opposing manager's hand because he's got some class! It's the anti-Simeone, Joe Lowry. Oh my goodness, Ryan. I loved that moment. Just Klopp's reaction. I know Simeone does that all the time, right? But mm-hmm. Klopp's reaction, it's like when you see someone you know on the other side of the street and you see them, but they don't see you and you wave to them and then they don't wave back and you just sort of like pretend like, oh, you know, that didn't happen. Klopp was a lot more, uh, you know, embodied and emboldened about this situation, but that made me laugh. And I, I took extensive notes about that particular sequence. It, it was a meeting, <laughs> Joe, of the manager who most wants a hug in the world to the one who least wants a hug, I think. <laughs> And uh, those two personalities did not mix, as we have said. It's basically like Taylor and me when we (laughs) finally meet in person. That'll be like Simeone and Klopp. Oh, (laughs) so good. 
I can't wait for that. It's going to be like when you have two opposing magnets and they don't quite yeah, come yeah. together. They never come together. It's going to be wonderful. I can't wonderful. even remember what I'm referencing, but I can't wait to pull on Graham the uh, it's not a hug if it doesn't last 10 seconds and just see how long he can go. 10 seconds. Wow. <laughs> never last that long. <sighs> Good stuff. Um, well, this is a Champions League review. We'll be looking through uh, several games in detail. But first, we do have to get to this Morogadi and Wondanara situation. I just need to get it off my chest. I'm so sorry about this. So for the listener, if you don't know, um, Wanda Nara, like an Argentinian um, model and TV personality, she was married to Maxi Lopez, uh, the Argentine soccer player. Uh, she, Maxi Lopez paid, played on Sampdoria with Mauro Cardi. Uh, Wanda Nara had an affair with Mauro Cardi. Maxi and Wanda then divorced. Less than six months after that, Wanda and Mauro Cardi got married. Mauro Cardi got a tattoo on his arm of Maxi Lopez's three kids. Uh, he then had two kids of his own with Wanda. Uh, she became his agent, by the way. She's, um, I know Joe's agent is Harry Kane's brother. She's Harry Kane's brother 2.0. Um, right, right. And, and and it's made Acardi very, very controversial in Argentina, so much so that he doesn't get called up to the national team. Uh, Diego Maradona was previously very critical of him in public as well. And as we all know, Maradona was a complete angel, so he has every right to be critical of Acardi. Um, Lopez and Acardi have played each other. Uh, when Sam played Inter uh, many years ago, it was referred to as the Wanda Derby. They didn't shake hands, Wainbridge and John Terry style. And that brings us up to date with the new scandal, uh, which uh, evolved over the past week. Morocardi caught messaging on Instagram with an Argentine model called China Suarez, which is not an Argentine name by what I can tell, but um, that's what happened. Uh, Wondanara got, she found out about this. Uh, she posted on social media. Uh, she posted, directed at her husband, another family that you have ruined for a whore. Which is brilliant because the last family he ruined was hers. So I don't know what she's calling herself at that point. What's even more brilliant, guys, is a columnist for an Argentine newspaper confirmed that this whole episode started when Acardi asked to see his wife's private messages as he was worried about her conduct on social media. And this evolved because he he reciprocated and showed her his, <laughs> in which he had these dodgy messages. Goodness me, goodness me. Uh, so he's trying to crawl back. It looks like he's been accepted back by Wandanara. Uh, he only follows one person on Instagram now, her. He doesn't follow PSG anymore, doesn't follow Messi anymore. Uh, his latest post, Morocardi's latest post, thank you, my love, for continuing to believe in this beautiful family. Thanks for being the motor of our lives. I love you. Uh, so all his recent posts are pictures of her. All her recent oh posts God. are also pictures of her. And Morocardi <laughs> missed Tuesday's game for family reasons. He missed the PSG game this week for family reasons, this being the family reasons. If you're one of Morocardi's teammates here, he's missing games for family reasons, as we say. Uh, imagine being one of his teammates and seeing this unfold, seeing it unfold very publicly. And it's basically him and his wife acting like teenagers in public. How would you feel? It doesn't feel terribly professional. Uh, my honest response to that is to ask you this question. Uh, in this scenario, have I been drinking? <laughs> is it you, you? Yes. Yes. Yes, you have. Uh, then I try to help. That, that's what would probably happen as I'd be like, let me, let me, we can figure this out together, buddy. <laughs> I feel like I would take that route and be like, we're going to sit down. We're going to figure this out. Uh, pro- sober me would stay as far away from that as I possibly could because it is... Like, fundamentally, it is a marriage potentially breaking up or at the very least in decline for a moment. And I think wading into that is not a thing I would really want to do when it came to a teammate, aside from like, well, I'm, I'm here if you need me. I'm going to go warm up now. That would probably be my approach until the person asked for help. And even then with Mario Accardi and Wanda, that feels like it could go toxic very quickly. Indeed. I don't watch any soap operas or reality TV, but this, this just gives me my fix. Uh, I think this is Soccer's very own reality TV show here. Joe, you still keeping up with this? Is this, is this tickle you as much as it tickles me? Uh, almost certain. No, I'm going to say it. Certainly not. It, it does not. Ryan, you were, you were born, I think, to be a TMZ sports reporter, and you are scratching that itch right now on this show, and I love it. The TMZ have sports reporters. I don't know, man. I don't. Just work with me on this, dude. Oh, yeah. They definitely do. Okay. They're famously the ones that like Ben Olsen had the the back and forth with about like TMZ like here okay <laughs> ah wonderful stuff well I'm glad I got that off my chest thank you for indulging me that for a second gents let's start looking at some games shall we we're going to look at three games as I mentioned all of which had a 3-2 scoreline coincidence yes 
Yes, it is a connection. <laughs> yeah. um, 59 goals in this round, gents. That's quite a lot. And uh, Graham, I think it's wonderful that Messi and Ronaldo are still making headlines, still scoring goals in this competition in 2021. Don't you? Um, yeah, I guess. I want to see the, the both of them kind of... I, I, I understand that that debate can get quite tiring, one or the other, and, and it definitely is tiring, but... I still want to see both of them doing good things at the elite level. So, yeah, I enjoyed it this week. They are they are masking a lot of flaws for both of their teams. It feels like that, that there's a lot of that going on at the moment. But I guess good to see them still performing at such a at such an age. Definitely. Like the Rolling Stones, Graham. You just want to see them keep going forever. <laughs> you do, but unfortunately that didn't happen recently. So I'm hoping that's ah, not... <laughs> yeah. that's not uh, tempting fate or anything excellent point Graham on that point let's move on swiftly to group A uh, the early kickoff on Tuesday was Club Bruges against Man City Man City getting a 4-1 win uh, Jao Cancelo's opener by the way was pretty wonderful worth looking up if you didn't see it City are in second place in group A with six points top of the group though the aforementioned Mauro Icardi's Paris Saint-Germain a 3-2 win over Red Bull Leipzig oil versus fizzy vodka mixer drink um, a great game Game. A really good game this one was, Taylor. Um, one of two, three, two scorelines on Tuesday. We had another one we're going to talk about as well. It felt to me, Taylor, that Leipzig were the better team for large sections of this game. And maybe it was just some individual errors and some contentious penalties that cost them ultimately. Yeah, this has to be, in a season that has featured many frustrating games for RB Leipzig, this has to be the most frustrating uh, for Jesse Marsh, for Tyler Adams, for Leipzig, because... Until PSG get that equalizer, their second goal, I thought it was one of the best performances I'd seen from Leipzig in some time, certainly under Marsh. I thought it was one of the best performances I'd seen from an American playing in Europe, uh, playing in the Champions League, certainly uh, in Tyler Adams. And then there's that individual mistake, which even there, like I, maybe it's my red, white, and blue tinted glasses. I see some reasons why that happened, but still it's that momentary error that makes it feel like one tiny mistake and PSG have the talent and ability to pull it back. And then I think you can see the nerves set in. And so it's 60 to 70 minutes of, of pretty good to very good soccer from RB Leipzig. And then 20 minutes of things just turning the other way. And here we are with a 3-2 loss for Leipzig. So you're referring there to Taylor, uh, Tyler Adams um, giving up, uh, well, making a mistake for that goal, Taylor. Yeah. Um, and you said you think you know why he did it. Was it because Marco Verratti was standing in front of him and was too close and took the ball off of him? <laughs> well, I think so. So much of what Tyler, part of why I thought Tyler Adams was so good on the day is because I suspect if you watch just clips of him playing, he doesn't look very good. But a lot of that to me is because he's covering so much ground and being so many different things at once. He's being the safety blanket in that number six who can be very mobile, but then he's also reestablishing possession. There's, I think the the second goal for Leipzig is Adams sprinting, out-muscling uh, Verratti to win a 50-50 ball to play it upfield, and then he gets up and there's no one there supporting Nkunku, so then he goes bombing forward another 40 yards to be an overlap to pull somebody with him. The ball goes in eventually, and um, and it ends up being 2-1 for Mukiele. But that sort of effort is so is so strong that when you contrast it with that moment, I think it's him trying to move into space again. He's trying to pick up a loose ball. He's trying to keep possession going. And I think in that moment, he gets boxed in and doesn't have many options. And you can see him sort of like check one option, check two option, check three option, and realize none of them are on. And then he's scrambling. And in that scramble, I think he loses awareness of where the ball is and he makes that mistake. But to me, that's kind of part and parcel of what he was being asked to do. Just in that moment, it's a very high-profile uh, not doing what he was supposed to do. Indeed. Joe, your thoughts on Jesse Marsh's setup here? For me, it was the wide players. It was Mukiele and Angelino who seemed to shine in this setup. Um, Angelino always seemed to have a lot of space as well and was putting in some wonderful, wonderful assists. Yeah, the three-five-two from Jesse Marsh in Leipzig, I thought worked fairly well in a lot of moments of this game. Again, I, I agree with Taylor on a lot of things that he's presented. Leipzig did a number of things very well. They pressed well. They high-pressed from the start of this game in that three-five-two shape. They had the two forwards up front in Andre Silva and Nkunku. Then the midfield three behind them with Tyler Adams working as the anchor of that group. Then he did have the wing backs bombing up high up the field, the back three. I thought the shape worked well. You're never going to fully be able to pin PSG in with the personnel they have. They are really hard to stop when they build up. You have a number of players who are just extremely press-resistant and just so dangerous when they break forward. So you can never fully shut down a team like PSG, 
But Leipzig did a fairly good job of being the disruptors in this game, getting the ball, playing direct, and taking advantage of the space in a number of different areas. But out wide, like you're mentioning, Ryan, that was real in this game because of how PSG defend there often is space in those outer channels. And having players like Angelino who can deliver really nice service into the box, and he did that on multiple occasions in this game, including both of those goals for Leipzig, that's huge. So there was a lot to like here from RB Leipzig. And as again, as you mentioned, Ryan, some individual mistakes that really let them down in this game. And when you make mistakes against PSG, if you give them an inch, they will take a mile. And in this in this case, that mile was just three goals and a win. You, you guys have, have highlighted some of the, the good things that RB Leipzig did. And I, I completely agree. I thought this was a, a, an impressive performance from them for the most most part. I would ask if at points their ambition was their downfall. So I understand that it's 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 difficult to change style. This is the way that Marsh's team play, how RB Leipzig play. But that high press just at, at times was playing into PSG's hands. And PSG, as we've watched them this season, they do struggle to, to break down low defensive blocks. I'm not suggesting that Leipzig should have gone a complete 180 and, and completely changed their style, but... By putting so many players forward, it just gave PSG so much space to break into. And we saw that for the uh, the penalty decision that led to the third PSG goal. And then it happened again for the, the second penalty. It happened for the, the first goal, Mbappe's goal, where he has space to break into. And that that's kind of where PSG... It's difficult to stop them. I understand that, but it, that is you, you maybe want to limit those opportunities that they have as much as possible. And I just felt Leipzig didn't really do that. That was the downside of their tactical game plan for me. It's such a hard balance to strike, Graham, because as you're mentioning, it, it is, in a sense, it is more logical to play against PSG when you sit back and you don't give Mbappe specifically space to run in behind, right? That is, that's a fair tactical assessment of how you want to approach PSG. At the same time, I'm a firm believer in the fact that you can play a whole number of different styles and still do them effectively in a way that will stymie any number of different types of opposition. If we look at that first goal that Mbappe scores, it's an incredible counterattack from PSG. They are just lethal in those situations. That doesn't happen, though, if Leipzig have their shape a a bit more sorted out and a bit more solidified as they lose the ball and start to counterpress. They lose the ball at kind of the edge of, of PSG's box. And the reaction is just not good enough. They're they're not in shape to counterpress. The rest defense isn't good enough in this moment. They leave themselves 2v2 in the back against Mbappe and, and Julian Draxler. And you just can't do that kind of stuff. If, if you're not set higher up the field, you certainly can't deal with a 2v2 in the back. And you really don't want to be 2v2 in the back anyway against a player like Mbappe. So I, I think I, I see your point there, Graham. I'm also of the mind that slight tweaks to how Leipzig play would have had a major and positive impact in this game. We're going to do a one-on-one after this one about like the various forms of pressing. And I would say you could probably split the difference and still continue to press, just be very selective in the areas of the pitch that you're going to apply that pressure. Because I think I agree with Graham, and I think this kind of goes for Atalanta as well in their game against Manchester United, that they stayed very open. They kept trying to play the same game plan. And I think in both games, you could still see PSG and Manchester United getting opportunities and finding ways through. And so if you vary your defensive approach, you sit a little bit deeper, but then you press in even tighter areas of the pitch. It seems to me that you negate a little bit of Mbappe's pace, which I always forget how like insanely fast he is until you see him. It's, it's ridiculous. It feels like Bo Jackson Tecmo Super Bowl. It should not be like somebody overpowered him. Uh, and here we are. But I think if you sit a little bit deeper, you negate some of that pace as much as you can, and then you can sort of press in opportune moments. And maybe that's the way to split the difference for Leipzig, because I do think they left themselves too open. They rolled the dice a few too many times. And here we are with them with zero points from the game. Are we to agree, though, Taylor, that this is a positive trajectory for RB Leipzig, given the start to the season and where we are now and holding their own against a admittedly not great organized PSG? Yeah, I, I think it is. I truly do. And I think with an, a different club, I think it's a different answer. But with Leipzig, they seem to prioritize patience. They prioritize making sure that they select the right manager who fits their philosophy. I think they've done that here with Marsh. And then they give that manager time to sort of bet in and figure things out. I don't think that they are a win right now or else sort of club. I think they are always in the process of building towards reaching that next level theoretically. And so... 
to watch this game, you see Marsh's game plan in effect. You can see the players responding. You can see that the fight is there. And in a system that is so intense, that requires so much running, so much communication, and a lot of that being blunt communication, I think in moments of panic and moments of frustration, you can see that boil over. And with Leipzig yesterday, certainly moments of tension, you're always going to have those. But for the most part, it felt like a unified team performance, even if there were individual mistakes. And so I think you have to see that as as positive if they don't start getting more consistent results, maybe less so. But uh, I think, yes, there are positive signs there. I'm surprised we've talked this long about uh, about Leipzig, I guess, because we've already covered Icardi. But I also <laughs> thought there were some positives for PSG in this one, just more so individual than team-wide. Well, how about, um, Graham, if, if um, Jesse Marsh has had a positive trajectory and is showing positive signs, what about Poch in that respect? Have they pushed on under him are they more organized or are they just relying on you know individual quality and individual moments they are winning ugly a lot this year i suppose i'm asking is he argentinian oligonisoskia <laughs> oh i i don't know ryan is the honest answer with with pochettino <laughs> i i any spurs day i honestly thought pochettino was the only manager who could get close to kind of clop guardiola levels particularly towards that season where Spurs were in the Champions League final and Spurs were challenging for Premier League titles and everything was just, he seemed like such a good coach to me. You know, his system always seemed to be on point and he used to maximise the players that he had. This season and maybe in 2021 as a whole, I haven't really seen that from him at, at PSG. This was more, for me anyway, maybe the guys disagree, but this, this was more of the same for PSG this season. Loads of superstars on the pitch, some moments of individual brilliance. They get the win and yet lacking in a system or, or structure to control games. They're just so dependent on space opening up for their, their front three, Mbappe in particular on the counter-attack. As I mentioned earlier, that's how they score the first goal. And in the way they, def- they defend, looking at the other end of the pitch, they're just so casual at times. There was, a, there was a chance in the first half that I think encapsulated that, which was when Marquinhos just waits for a bouncing ball to come to him He's, he's, I think, the third defender. So there's two defenders who are either um, alongside him or slightly behind him. So it's not like he's he's far up the pitch and he can be that casual. He's very casual, waits for the bouncing ball to come to him. Leipzig nip in, win it, and all of a sudden they have a three-on-three situation. And there was a lot of uh, moments like that from PSG. And, and that casualness, I've, I've seen that from them all the way through the season. Something that I've noticed about PSG this season, and it was noted in the commentary as well, is that they don't deny opposition teams from getting crosses into the box. And that cost them for the the second Leipzig goal, um, where I think Sangelino plays the, the ball. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic driven cross to the back post to, for uh, Mikulele to finish. But the number of times that Leipzig were allowed to get crosses into the box, I guess maybe that is part of the, the sacrifice you make by playing two attacking fullbacks and Nuno Mendes on the left and obviously uh, Akraf Hakimi, Hakimi on the right. But they they just, as a defensive unit and as a unit as a whole, their midfield, I mean, Verratti is a, is a great player. He he seems to um, mask a lot of problems. He's, he's one big uh, plaster in that midfield. Uh, it just, something's not right with the balance. One thing with, with the defense that would help, I think, is Sergio Ramos coming back. I think mm. PSG are really weak aerially at the back. And so Sergio Ramos coming into that team would help in that regard. The number of times that Leipzig were winning 50 50 balls in the air inside the PSG box was, was amazing. But yeah, Porcino has a, a lot of the same problems that Solskjaer has, actually. It's not the worst comparison because he has such so many different options he has such a loaded team but yet he he's yet to figure out how he gets that team working on the pitch as as a as a unit it's not the worst comparison is the best praise i've ever had on this podcast thank you very much for that graham <laughs> hey hey graham que- question for you then do you think i mean this sincerely as well like leaving spurs it seemed to be there there's not enough recruitment there's not enough sort of reinforcement we can't keep this system going and then he ends up at PSG where there is all the recruitment yeah. and all the talent and all the money to be spent. Like, is this almost a Goldilocks situation of does he need to find the one in between? Because I look at that PSG team and the talent they have, the way it's been assembled. And I think, can you get that team to play a high pressing, high intensity system? And I think maybe even as appropriately, do you need to? If you have Messi who can do messy things, if yeah. you have Mbappe who can outrun every player on the pitch, it's a strange reality of do you even need a system if your team can just be like, oh, we need a goal? All right, we'll figure something out. And that's very boom-bust. That's very, 
like high risk, high reward. But it seems like if you can thread that needle, it's a different way to approach management for a manager that I used to think was primarily just about the system. Yeah, and and that's the thing with PSG this season is they have won. It's either eight out of nine or nine nine out of ten league on fixtures. You know they're going to win that that league at a canter. Then you have the Champions League where results wise in a difficult group they're going well. You know they've they've beaten Manchester City and they and and now they've beaten uh, Leipzig, a decent team. So results wise, Poch doesn't have much to to worry about. Going back to the recruitment point that you made, I think there's something in that, and I wish I could remember where I read it, what article I read. It was a long time ago, a number of years ago, but I read a feature somewhere from a journalist who was talking about how Pochettino, it wasn't the case that Spurs weren't willing to invest for Pochettino. It was the players that they were bringing him were not to his liking. And Daniel Levy was getting frustrated with players that he thought he was bringing Pochettino that would improve the team and were of the stature and standing that he wanted. And Pochettino was turning his nose up at them for the smallest little reason. You know, like they, they don't do this thing right. And and Levy's point was, well, you know, you coach them to do to do them right. And I just wonder if, there is something in that. Pochettino is so specific about the kind of players that he wants. And now he's gone into a club where they sign all the players and they don't, they don't really have a, a, a transfer strategy other than sign the best players in the world. And so that's maybe something that he is struggling with. My immediate thought to that is maybe he just didn't want Daniel Levy deciding who was coming yeah, in. True. And maybe he was going to nitpick to the point where it was the like, all right, fine, you do it. And then he has complete say over who he's bringing in. I think my theory there, Taylor, is if you've seen All or Nothing Spurs, it's just that Daniel Levy eats his breakfast very loudly and he eats it in front of everybody in that canteen, <laughs> as we've all seen, and maybe just bothered him every day having to watch that. Could happen. Could happen. I mean, solid logic. Solid, solid logic, logic, indeed. Right. That's what I'm all about, Taylor. Um, uh, Joe, uh, one note on Leo Messi. Uh, getting uh, Poch was getting some criticism for maybe playing him in a wide position when he might be less suited to that these days. Your thoughts on PSG in their shape? Messi goes where Messi wants to go, uh, and Messi went in a lot of different places in this game. He popped up on the left, he popped up in the middle, and in most of the time, though, he did spend on the right side. I don't have any issue with that in in the 4-3-3 shape for PSG. It's going to be fluid. There is going to be a limit in terms of how much structure you can really impose on a team like this. Yes, you want to give them structure so that they can build off of that foundation and really express themselves, but there's a limit to that because you're coaching some of the best players and, and the most individualistic players in the world. PSG, I, I'm kind of thinking here as you guys have been talking, PSG are a team with weaknesses and fundamental problems but they have the best masks in the world right they're this team imagine you're fighting somebody and, and psg is one fighter and, and i guess leipzig in this case is another fighter psg are, are jacked physically um, except maybe like their left calf has some issues and maybe they're like their right tricep they need to stop weak. skipping leg day it's they the need hardest to place to add mass joe it's the hardest place to add mass to be fair <laughs> <laughs> that's true you're making good points guys so they, they have these weaknesses but also they're just still so physically strong and imposing that even those deficiencies it's still hard to fully exploit them i mean what are you going to do if you're fighting someone who can bench 400 pounds and is still incredibly fast i mean there's nothing there's nothing you can do really so they're going to be slips they're going to be problems for this psg team but they're still so strong and, and that i think is true almost regardless of what shape they're playing ryan i would run away in that situation joe oh, of course but but it, they're as fast as mbappe graham so you're not getting away that's true Sorry. yeah and and speaking of running away speaking of not getting mbappe uh joe you're right like i saw them in that 4-3-3 shape defensively i four, saw four, them two. dropping into a 4-4-2 four, four, yeah. with draxler coming uh, going to like kind of like left midfield which then Mostly, I just wanted to note this because I, I can't imagine a pairing I would less want to have to defend on a counter is Messi and Mbappe sitting up there sort of <laughs> waiting to combine. I think that is also part of why you had Messi on the right, so that he could move into that more attacking position when they were defending. But then in attack, you could get him wide and fi- let him kind of roam around and find pockets of space and do what he wanted. And he kind of did that. PSG good. PSG good. They good. Yep, PSG good is a good summary. Uh, Manchester City also good in Group A. It looks like they'll be the two going through. RB Leipzig haven't got any points in this group so far, so it looks like they'll be battling in the final uh, couple games to get uh, above Club Bruges to get into the Europa League. All right. Uh, When we come back after this quick break, we're going to talk about Atletico Madrid and Liverpool. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. 
Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We're talking Champions League. Let's head over to Group B, where Porto had a 1-0 win over AC Milan. Uh, Milan are uh, bottom of that group now with nil point. Uh, they've had losses to Liverpool and Atletico Madrid, who faced each other, of course, on Tuesday. Uh, Liverpool are topping the group with nine points. They are guaranteed at least third place. Europa League is at least on the cards, Jürgen. Congratulations. Uh, it's their third win of three here. Uh, this game was the first time these two teams have faced each other since 2019 at Anfield, right before the world lockdown, if you remember. Uh, a recent UK government report uh, suggested 37 people died because of that game, uh, directly linked to that game in 2019, which was which happened, lest we forget, uh, after quite a lot of the world had already locked down. Graham, this was a wild open match. It was pretty end-to-end, particularly in the first half. Liverpool going two up within 13 minutes. Atleti pulling it even before the winner came uh, in the 69th minute. Nice. Um, I don't (laughs) think, Graham, I've ever seen so much space for Atleti in the amount of space they gave up in this game. Yeah, this was a a strange game and I I might have to pass to Joe for some tactical analysis of this one (laughs) because it it was quite wild. Um, It it was the sort of match that Liverpool used to produce when they they were at their their best. Jurgen Klopp called it a dirty win and I think that is a pretty decent description of, of, of this result for them. People remember how Liverpool used to blow away opponents with their front three and that did happen when they were at their, their absolute best a couple of years ago. But they don't always remember how Liverpool used to be the best at winning dirty and winning these sort of games. And um, yeah, this, this was this was quite a spectacle, this match. Even at 2-0 up, I still felt like Atletico were going to come back in some form, and that that's that's what happened. And it was a, a very entertaining game. Antoine Griezmann had a, an eventful evening, <laughs> shall we say? Um, two goals here. His best performance overall for Atleti since returning from Barcelona. And just as it looks like this is going to be his night, he's showing a red card which tilted the match back in Liverpool's favour, and they made the most of that advantage of getting the goal that they needed to win three two. Graham, with the goals and the red card, if he'd have got an injury, it would have been a Diego Costa hat trick. It's a shame for him that night. <laughs> yeah, and Atleti are used to their forwards producing that sort of performance. <laughs> Indeed, Joe. What, what about the um, what about um, Atleti's setup here then? And my observation that they were giving up a lot of space and Navigator having quite a lot of, in quite a lot of the game. The, the defense seemed to look a bit more compact. Than I've noticed them, and maybe they were just a bit toothless quite a lot of the time. I think I think I'm a lot higher on this performance from Atletico Madrid than you are, Ryan. They were back in this 5-3-2 defensive shape. They certainly conceded a lot of space to Liverpool, as you're saying. They allowed Liverpool to control possession, and it was kind of a classic Atletico Madrid performance in that regard. They were back in that 5-3-2 most often in their own half. They would step forward and press sometimes, but they spent a lot of time in their own half. And they would try to shift side to side. The midfield three, one of the outer number eights in front of that number six, would shift out to sometimes step forward and press the ball inside their own half. And then they shift back the other way. Lots of side to side movement. And then when they did win the ball, they would send a runner over the top, either Griezmann or João Felix in that front two. They would run direct over the top. It happened a number of times in the first half where a ball over the top to one of those front runners created danger for Liverpool. It happened a number of different times in the first half, yes, but also in, in the second half too. So there was a lot to like here from Atletico Madrid in their performance. The challenging thing is in soccer, you can play really well and still not win. And I think that's exactly what happened here to Atleti, giving up those two wild goals to Liverpool at first. I don't know how much blame we can really put on Atletico Madrid for that. They were insane goals, particularly that volley from Keita. Well, hang, they, hang on a second there, Joe. The first, Salah's goal with the deflected shot the win, yes, it was a deflection, but he did have a lot of space. And wasn't that the goal where he sort of skipped past 
three players yeah. and no one put in a challenge. I think it was Koke who had maybe had the best chance to you know stick a leg in. He was outside the box the whole time. Salah cuts past one, past two, and past three on that goal, Ryan. You're right. But I think if you tell Diego Simeone you're going to allow a shot from outside the box from Salah when he has just had to dribble past a bunch of people and shoot in traffic, if you give Simeone that outcome, he's probably going to bank on his team either blocking that shot or banking on Jan Oblak saving that shot. So I don't know how much is to be blamed on Atletico Madrid on a team-wide level. Yes, there are individual mistakes that lead to that goal. But still, you don't necessarily expect that shot to hit the back of the net. So that Atletico Madrid were down 2-0 inside of 15 minutes. It surprised me, and I thought they deserved a lot of credit for fighting back in the way that they did. Joe, Joe I'm pleased that you mentioned the, the balls over the top because that was that was one of the things that was I thought was really interesting about this Atletico Madrid performance. And it was the player who was playing those passes was Rodrigo de Paul. So and good. that is what they bought him to do. And I wrote a couple pieces when he signed for Atleti on how he would give Atleti a, a different dimension. That is a role that he plays for for uh, for Argentina, for the national team, and he did very well for Udinese when he was there. And Atleti don't really have a player like that, you know, sort of, I, I don't really like this term, but a, a footballing quarterback, someone who can play that ball. And so when Simeone uses uh, Yao Felix and Antoine Griezmann as the front two, let's not forget that Luis Suarez is on that squad and he's on the bench for this match he's not really going to make the most of those 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 passes over the top so Simeone playing those those players as a front two was a sign to me that was a key part of how they were going to get in, in behind Liverpool and as you say Joe it worked time and time again Griezmann should have had well he should have had a hat trick because he scored twice and then there's a really good chance where Alisson comes out and, and blocks a one-on-one from a DePaul pass and I think DePaul is, he's he's had a He's had a decent start at Atleti, but we haven't seen the best of him so far. And it wouldn't surprise me if between now and the end of the season, he becomes a really important player for them. I also, I really liked Ryan uh, mentioning the previous uh, meeting between these two clubs. Uh, Obviously, not the result of that one because that's kind of uh, negative. But in this case, I like it because I think Jurgen Klopp had his team ready to go from the jump. And having just sort of talked about PSG, not having that consistency, not having that fight, I think the same goes for Manchester United until they concede and then they have to get something going. Here, I think, was Liverpool being up for it from the start. And I think Atleti, always a club that are going to be up for it. But I think you saw Simeone having to pick the team up multiple times. I think they were maybe a little bit surprised by that intensity from Liverpool such that they don't have those players step. And you would expect more. I think it was uh, Hermoso, Lamar, and then Koke. All three of those you would expect to put in an aggressive tackle. And I wonder if Liverpool were just so at them early and then there's that early goal and then there's another goal. And I, I think it's the intensity of Liverpool and then it's Atleti growing into the game. I think both kind of deserve praise in the end. Well, Hermoso certainly put an aggressive tackle in on uh, Jota. Yeah, in the so bad. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> oh, boy. So oh boy. on that note, Graham, can we still refer to Atleti as the kings of poop housery? There was lots of that kind of stuff, lots of breaking up play, lots of compl- maybe I just noticed it more like complaining, uh, even Kieran Trippier get fully embracing the Atleti ways and rolling around a lot. Am, yeah. am I just am I just being typical Brit picking this kind of stuff up? Or, or um... no, I, th- I think that's I think that's fair. I think that's what Atletico Madrid do. I think it's a it's a key part of their appeal for me. I, I love a <laughs> bit of uh, poop history. Who doesn't? Who doesn't, Graham? Diego Simeone. Diego Simeone, excuse me, certainly does. Um, Joe, how about Liverpool and their setup here? What did you make of uh, their shape and? Virgil van Dijk, did he have his best game here? The way he, I mean, the, the Griezmann's goal when he turned him, it was a wonderful move from Griezmann, but also uh, van Dijk looked like he was turning like an oil tanker at that point. <laughs> there were some of those moments um, from van Dijk and from other Liverpool players. As far as their shape and in their setup, Klopp had them in a 4-3-3 defensively and a 4-3-3 in some moments in possession But this is one of the more fluid Liverpool possession shapes I can really remember ever having seen. There was so much rotation, so many many different movements off the ball to try and find space within Atletico Madrid's 5-3-2 block. And and to be honest, I don't think they did that all that well in this game. I don't think they exposed space in key pockets as often as they wanted to. But there were a lot of different rotations that I thought were interesting. Milner, James Milner dropping to the left-back spot. Uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold spent a lot of time in the right half space. And then one one other player would be wide and 
sometimes that, that wide right player would even be Roberto Firmino, who is the nine in this game. You also had Naby Keita pushing up as a 10, and then he comes off at halftime for Fabinho. But there's so many different moving pieces and parts here for Liverpool with the goal of one, trying to get in inside Atletico Madrid's shape, as I mentioned, and two, trying to establish their counter-pressure after they lose the ball. All those intentions and ideas were there. I don't know that the execution was, but when you get three points, uh, it, it doesn't look so bad, guys. Uh, it definitely wasn't, Joe. I'm with you on that one, because part of the execution comes down to individuals doing what they're supposed to do, and a hallmark of Gagan pressing under Klopp is not over-committing in tackles, that you want to sort of close down that space, you want to press, you want to put them under pressure, but you don't want to overcommit because as soon as you are beaten, that is a massive vulnerability for the rest of the team. And I'm saying that to spotlight Nabi Keita, who had a very strange game. He scores an incredible volley. It's so pretty, <laughs> but he is directly at fault for both goals. Uh, to your point, Ryan, about Virgil van Dijk getting turned uh, for the second goal, I think it was for Graysman, that is because... Uh, uh, Matip, the other center back, had had to step out to try to get on Jao Felix because Felix had so easily turned Nabi Keita that he was just going straight at goal. So he has to vacate that space. Griezmann moves into it, and away we go. And for the first goal, he is easily turned and basically skinned by Thomas Lamar, who then has the ball in for Koke uh, to hit. I think at the end of the game, at the end of the half, excuse me, uh, Keita was one for nine in his duels, not the defensive Yikes. intensity you want and certainly not uh, winning the battles you need, thus... Not surprised to see him depart at halftime, but I'm going to guess for Liverpool fans, this was another frustrating display from Naby Keita. Yeah, but he'd done a nice volley, Taylor. There is that. There is that. <laughs> he got to put his feet up for the second half as a reward. Read it that way. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, Graham, anything else to pick out from Liverpool? I thought Alisson was uh, rather good between the sticks. Um, maybe uh, made up for some of the misgivings of the defenders in front of him. Yeah, I thought Alisson had a good game. Obviously, I, I mentioned that the save that he makes from from Griezmann to to stop him scoring. I can't I can't recall if that would have been his second goal or his third goal, but um, yeah, it would have been, it, he was clean through after a, a DePaul pass, so he comes out to narrow the angle. He did well. I guess the other talking point we should maybe mention is the Griezmann red card. Given that I, I was surprised there was so much debate about this one, um, kicking I, someone I, in for, the face. Yeah, for me, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think there's any question it was a, it was a red card. Griezmann endangered Firmino by putting his foot. And he's and he's studs up as well. You know, it's it's a foot with studs up so high and catches. It was quite similar to Taylor, you'll remember the the nanny red cards, but yeah. actually a lot mm -hmm. worse. I thought the nanny one was borderline because he kind of catches the, the Real Madrid player on the kind of side of the chest. Whereas this is just straight in Firmino's face. So I was surprised there was so much yeah. debate. Graham, I'm right there with you. It seems like a lot of the narrative around this game has been the referee lost control or the referee was sort of erratic in the decision-making. Should that have been a penalty at the end for Atleti? For, for me, I thought he got pretty much everything right here. I think that's definitely a red card. It's, it might be not, maybe it's not violent, but it's reckless and it's dangerous and it could cause injury. That's a red card. And then for the one that's pulled back at the very end uh, for Jimenez, I watched this one so slowly. And I think what it always comes down to for me is if you watch the, uh, attacker's feet and what happens to the feet and do they kind of move naturally or is there a clip? If there's not a clip, do they suddenly change direction or does the plant foot land in a weird place and if so, why? And watching this one, nothing happens. Jimenez is running at full speed, he's in stride and then he has his like, I think it's his right leg is out and then he just pulls his right leg back and falls over and there's no contact, there's no clip. I think absolutely, as the commentator said, he feels the presence from Jota there. He knows that there could be contact and I think anticipates it. And I would argue just anticipates it a little bit too much. And maybe if he kind of just continues as he had been, there is actual contact and he does get clipped. But I think as the replay showed, definitely not enough for uh, a penalty be, penalty to be given. And then I thought the official did a good job of sort of listening to the Atleti players so it didn't completely boil over, but never really letting them have too big of an influence on his decision-making. Yeah, I agree. That was well-handed, well I thought. Um, Atleti fans and Diego Simeone might have blamed that incident for not getting anything out of this game. But for me, Taylor, it was in the 80th minute when Diego Simeone made a quadruple substitution. You don't yeah. see those every day. I, I don't know how I feel about these because changing nearly half of your outfield team to try and get a result, it feels like you're, you're mixing too much there. It's too much, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and especially I think it was happening on a set piece when they were defending a set piece, I believe. So yeah. not necessarily the time you want to do that. But yeah, I think that late in the game, 
it is always going to take a couple minutes to get sort of into it, to understand what's happening, to understand just sort of who's doing what on the opposition side, what your teammates are doing when in possession. You just need a couple minutes to get into the flow. But when you have four new players, four new outfield players at that on the pitch, you're changing 40% of the team that's playing. It's going to take a little bit longer. And I think that was probably too late, but I think it's the nature of the beast when it comes to five substitutions, but only three spots to put them in. So if you want to make a change early, you're limiting what you can do later. I think it was Simeone mind games. He was trying to make Liverpool think they were in a preseason friendly. That's what it was. That could be. Yeah. Man, I, I got to say, I came away from this game. The commentators in one game were kind of criticizing Simeone and talking about, like, why would you want to play for a manager like that? I thought this was <laughs> like a thesis statement in why people love playing for Atleti and why he continues to get results from his players, because if you look over there and you see him screaming and fighting and or not literally fighting, although sometimes literally sometimes. fighting, uh, like I think it has to motivate you. It has to instill that belief. He is I, I wrote this down. He is anti Ted Lasso, but still Ted Lasso. He has that like earnestness in his approach. It's just way more aggressive. Uh, so I, I found myself really enjoying Simeone at times and. Mohamed Salah being as enjoyable as he is, is very frustrating for me, a Manchester United fan, because he just does everything right and also seems to be a good human. Doesn't get an Oblox face and celebrate when he scores the penalty, which he could have for all the housery that was happening. Just points to the away Liverpool fans way up in the upper deck and just smiles and nods. And that's the type of like celebration, the positivity you want. So you could go the Salah route. He feels like a Ted Lasso guy. You could go the Simeone route, who feels like bizarro Ted Lasso. <laughs> I also I also enjoyed the the fashion contrast between Simeone and Klopp. Like Simeone, as he is always dressed as like a, uh, I guess like a drug kingpin, and Klopp kind of dressed like the guy who sells the drugs (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I was gonna go with German tourist, but yeah, I think yours is better. I was going to ask you how you know that, Graham, but I'll, uh, we'll save that for another time. Uh, why don't we uh, take a quick break? When we come back, we'll be talking about Manchester United and their win against Atalanta. Back soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We're talking Champions League. Let's have a quick run through some of the groups in Group C. Sporting Lisbon got a 4-1 win over Besiktas. Sporting's first point on the board in this competition uh, this season. Uh, Top of that group, though, Joe, Ajax, three wins in three. They look to be the real deal, don't they? A 4-0 home win over Dortmund here. Very smoky win with uh, some smoke uh, smoke bombs apparently being set off in the stadium, it seemed. Uh, Dortmund's biggest Champions League loss this was, Joe, and um, a very good job by Ajax. They're so good, guys. They're so, so good. They moved the ball really quickly in possession. Dortmund could not keep up with them. Taylor, I know you watched a lot more of this game than I have. I have more just general thoughts on how darn good Ajax have been this year. Uh, What did you see in this game? And and was that scoreline indicative of the performance? Because I certainly think it was. Yeah, it definitely was. And it was just a relentlessness. It could have been much, much worse for Dortmund. It felt like Dortmund just sort of gave up. Marco Rosa talked about that after the match, that when it was 2-0 down, the players reacted as though it were 4-0 and there was just no fight back. And for Ajax, it's not even... That like you have like all of these really like promising up and comers or you have all of these crafty veterans. It's a combination of both that were able to get the results. But when you say that and then look at Dortmund, who have a very similar combination of youth and veteran experience, you see the contrast in what they were able to do and how they were able to do it. A lot of that is probably Eric Ten Hag having been there longer, having kind of gotten the Ajax players more familiar with what he wants to do, but also they play for Ajax. They know what they're going to do, and there is some stability in the permanence of that system. But I, yeah, from start to finish, I thought it was an immense performance from Ajax, but the fact that it's Daily Blind getting a goal and an assist and <laughs> two very a good goal and a good assist at that, like it shows you what players can do when put in the right system and sort of backed by the manager. How badly do you want Eric 
Ten Hag at my United Taylor, more or less than Donny van de Beek. <laughs> uh, I, I, so I don't want to go like too small of a sample size, but from the two IX games I've seen this season, I would be fine with Eric Ten Hag as long as he's bringing the entire philosophy and coaching staff with him. That would be fine with me. Uh, yeah, as long as there's going to be the sort of okay. dedication to what he wants to do and building that sort of style, I am, I am okay. good with it. Uh, I don't know if that would happen. Okay, so as long as my United can transplant decades yeah. of cultural yeah. uh, heritage mm-hmm. within, yeah. like, instantly, that, yeah, mm-hmm. you're, you're all for, all for it. <laughs> do you- do you think that Ed Woodward hasn't tried to do that? Like, do you think he hasn't inquired as to whether or not you can buy culture and history? Can we just buy 10 wins? Is that possible? Like, I feel like that would be a thing he would look into. Uh, but no, I think Eric Ten Hag would make a lot of sense at Manchester United, I think, for the style he could get them to play. And I think with maybe getting some players on board who would be more willing to press than I previously thought, I think there's ways it could work. So yeah, let's get Eric Ten Hag over there uh, and let him fight it out with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Graham messaged the TSS WhatsApp group uh, proudly wearing his Ajax shirt uh, on the evening of this game. Uh, Graham, a potential dark horse for you. There's some whispers I've seen on social that this team is even better than the one that went to the semis a few years back. Yeah, so first of all, they have fantastic kits this year. So that's the one. That's the big reason they're going to have a, a big run at the Champions League. Obviously, they've that's got right. the, the limited edition Bob Marley tribute shirt, which uh, I have. I also have the, the jumper, the sweatshirt of that as well. And even the home kit has a like an amazing retro crest on it this season, which I, I also have that shirt. That's the one that I, I took the picture of. But obviously a few things have to fall into place. It could be the case that they get a really tricky draw despite winning this group that they're in. Um, They could get a tricky draw for the the last 16 or the quarterfinals and that makes things difficult. But are they better than the team that made the semifinals a few years ago? On what I've seen so far of them this season, potentially, yes. I think think that's absolutely fair to say. As Taylor mentions, they've got such a good mix of homegrown players like uh, Ryan Gravenberch and, and then they've got players they've picked up through should recruitment like Anthony and then they've got a good mix of ages like veterans like Blind and Dusan Tadic and then they've got youngsters like Gravenberch and, and, and Anthony are, are both young as well yeah I think this this team looks the real deal um, and I'll definitely be keeping an eye out for their, their fixtures through the rest of the competition well, I look forward to members of this team, Graham, being picked off by bigger teams and not being used properly then. That sounds uh, <laughs> that sounds fun. Uh, Group D, uh, Real Madrid got a 5-0 win over Shakhtar Donetsk in this one, uh, bouncing back from their defeat to uh, the almighty Sheriff Tiraspol in the last round. Inter Milan uh, getting a 3-1 win over the aforementioned Sheriff, uh, the Moldovans' first defeat in this competition. But Sebastian Till, uh, if you haven't seen it, listener, got a pretty amazing free kick put away from distance in this game. I recommend you check that one out uh, in Group E the early Wednesday kickoff was Barcelona against Dynamo Kiev a 1-0 win for Barca uh, goal there from Balloon World Cup advocate Gerard Piquet of course <laughs> uh, Barcelona's first groups uh, first points excuse me of the group so far they're now in third place uh, top of this group Bayern Munich a 4-0 win over Benfica uh, they've scored 12 goals and conceded none Joe newsflash Bayern Munich still good there you go oh my word There, I, I feel like I'm just saying this about all the teams that will at least some of the teams we're talking about. Bayern Munich are insanely good. They are they are performing excellently under Julian Nagelsmann, and that does not come at any surprise after what we talked about on Monday. It does not indeed. Uh, Group F, uh, Villarreal had their way with young boys at the Wankdorf, a 4-1 win for the Spaniards there. They're now in second place. <laughs> I'll never not laugh. <laughs> never not laugh, never not funny, Graham. Uh, top of that group, though, is a team who were bottom of the group after half-time of their group. Taylor, Manchester United, a 3-2 win over Atalanta. Sixth in the Premier League, taking on sixth in Serie A here. Um, Taylor, if you don't mind me uh, um, seeing revealing how the sausage is made a little bit, more of our TSS uh, WhatsApp chat. Um, t- Taylor, you messaged, I think, at half-time, is this a good game? And I think you were saying how you were enjoying this game despite the scoreline with uh, United being down at that point. For me personally, Taylor, I was enjoying the game because I was sitting next to my father-in-law, who's a Man United fan. I had a lot of schadenfreude for the first half. <laughs> and the second half was, I just thought, really fun. When it came to life, that was like... The kind of game, this is, it was like one of those cliche, this is why we watch the game kind of moments. To see Old Trafford erupt like it did, to see old Ronnie come in with the winner, it was fun, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really fun. And that is what I meant, Ryan, because at halftime, I've seen a lot of the narrative be they were so bad and so cautious and so slow in the first half and just so much a completely different team in the second half. I don't really believe that. Watching that game and what I meant in that message was more so like, 
they seem like they should be better than they are right now. That it's, I think it's two opportunities, two goals for Atalanta. There's a set piece in there, which seems to be the nature of the way Manchester United like to concede these days. Uh, but there were so many shooting opportunities and goal-scoring chances and good interchanges and individual moments in that first half that it just seemed like there were goals to be had if Manchester United like stayed calm and kept pushing and especially so if uh, Atalanta didn't change up what they were doing and sort of get slightly more conservative, and Atalanta did not, Manchester United persisted and then reinforced and then persisted some more, and in the end, a, a 3-2 win. Taylor, you must have been concerned, though, with that midfield in the first half, though. Like, And this is Groundhog Day, we just keep talking about Manchester United's <laughs> midfield, but, you know, before kickoff, I was in, I was encouraged by Solskjaer's willingness to, to drop Pod, uh, Pogba for a midfield anchor, which is what I think I said of that on, on Monday, that's kind of what he needed to do. But when I was watching that first half, the same issue remained where United were in that 4-2-4 shape with players in advanced positions, not really high pressing. And then it gave Fred and McTominay just so much work to do on their own to find a teammate when they had the ball. And, you know, the reason I suggested Pogba would be a good option to drop out was to sacrifice him for the system. And you do sacrifice a lot by dropping Pogba. Obviously, he's a world-class, a world-class player, a player with seven assists in the Premier League this season. However, what use is that if you don't then get the structure? And I, I just didn't see... Solskjaer, to his credit, made a few changes for the start of the second half. I thought Fernandez was slightly too high in the first half, and so he dropped him deep a little bit more, and that, I felt, did make a difference. But there must have been some stuff in that midfield that concerned you in the first half. I mean, I, that that is sort of an, of an ever-present thing when it comes <laughs> right, to Manchester sure. United, because to me, it, it's such a simple solution of find a number six who can do the defensive side of things that you need, that can cover the ground that you need, but can pass the ball and turn turn in possession and play the ball forward. It doesn't have to be world-beating. It doesn't have to be the best midfielder in the world, but that's just such an obvious thing that then lets Pogba do more of what he wants to do naturally. It frees up Bruno to do more of what he wants to do. And I think it wouldn't even need to be the case if Manchester United had more of a system that played into having those two midfielders. And Graham, to your point, I think that's what we often see is, okay, well, those two are going to do the defensive side, so the front four is going to go create, but then you end up getting these big gaps between one line and the next and the next. And I, I think... Yeah, that's always going to be a concern with that midfield, especially if you don't have the back line stepping up. And really, I come away from this one reiterating what I think Sam Tai said on Twitter at the end of this one, which is like, that was a really fun game that we learned nothing from. Because I really have nothing new to add about Manchester United. Midfield remains a concern, but when you put everybody in there and get everybody working and believing in a win, it seems like they've got the talent and ability to eventually grind out a win. Yeah, uh, Joe, forgive me if we are retreading because we do tend to talk about Man United a little bit on this podcast because they are quite newsworthy because of their, well, whatever it is they do. And on Escapades. that note, <laughs> their escapades indeed. Joe, like you're you're a, a very astute uh, watcher of the game. You're, you're very good at picking out patterns of play. Can you tell me what are Man United's patterns of play? What are they? Because I, I don't understand <laughs> what they do. Uh, Ryan, you have company in that regard. The, the challenge <laughs> with Manchester United is there's generally a lack of consistency in how they perform with the ball. Well, that's that's one problem with Manchester United. They lack control in midfield a lot of times because Bruno tends to drift and you don't have a lot of really strong, sturdy personnel deeper downfield, which is something that we've talked about ad nauseum, right? And then you have the wingers oftentimes tucking inside, the fullbacks overlapping, and there's some fluidity out wide. There are general rotations and patterns with this team, just like there is with almost every top-level professional team. The challenge is, though, using those rotations and using the ball to create chances. And actually, it wasn't a challenge for Manchester United in this game, but I, I side with Taylor. I don't think we learned much because the uh, the opponent here for Manchester United is so irregular, right? This is the only team that in the Premier League that plays like this, that, that plays like Gasparini's Atalanta team, is Leeds. And Manchester United have done well against Leeds in the past because the idea of playing against a team like that is totally different. The, the rotations are different and the play is different because they man-mark, or at least they're man-oriented in a lot of senses. In this game, Coop Miners and Pasolic, uh, the two of Atlanta's central midfielders, were just camping out on Fred and McSauce in this game, Scott McTominay, for Manchester United, which then forced Manchester United to adapt and to rotate and to play little quick central combinations to prioritize aggressive off-ball movement. And I don't think there was quite enough of that in the first half, although there were chances that Manchester United 
created from that. The best example probably being Fred's shot in the 44th minute that goes wide of the far post. There were sequences like that, but then there were so many of them in the second half. And Manchester United really stepped up and they didn't drastically change their approach, but they started dominating the ball even more and they did start creating more and more chances. So Ryan, to your original question, I think there aren't a lot of meaningful patterns that are leading to goal scoring chances and goal scoring opportunities. There were more so in this game, but I'm I'm concerned that this is a one-off because of the type of opposition. Taylor, a question for you. Is Harry Maguire okay? Um I mean, he got a, got a good goal here from resulting from the worst corner ever with uh, two Man United shirts in the box when it came in. Um, but he seems to, you know, didn't have a good game last weekend and seemed to be not in the places he should be in this game as well. Uh, yeah, including in the post-match interview when he was asked about, like, like how clutch is Ronaldo? How nice is it to have him and his goal-scoring abilities? Uh, like, you went down early, but you fought it back, and then he gets the winner. And Maguire seemed only to have heard you went down early. And it, the, his entire response was about like what they did wrong and how they could have done better. I, it, it gave me the impression that he is maybe feeling a little bit of the intensity about needing to turn up that performance a bit. And yes, the goal is great. Yes, the fight back is good. Uh, yes, the issues about the defense and who works best and why can't they defend a set piece also remain. So it's consistent in their inconsistency, basically. Well, at least Maguire will have a nice, easy game against a pretty toothless opponent yeah. in the next match. Yeah, uh, yeah, that'll be a, a stroll for him. Yeah, nice relaxing. Uh, yeah, just just Liverpool, who are they playing this weekend? Of course, so nothing to worry about there for Man United fans. Graham, it, it seems like we we get into this. We we talk about Man United a lot. And we talk about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer a lot. And his sustainability, like he doesn't seem like he's sustainable, it doesn't seem like he's the solution to Manchester United. But here we are, we're four seasons in and he's still there. Does he, is he just like, he, he keeps getting away with it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, just, I think I saw I can, that Breaking I'm, Bad I'm, meme did, on Did you just Twitter. compare him to Walter White indirectly? Because I, I feel is, like he did. That is exactly, <laughs> I saw the Breaking Bad meme of, wow, does he keep getting away with it? <laughs> Yeah, it, Solskjaer is difficult to work out, right? <laughs> um, you're totally right. There doesn't seem to be any, not only is there no pattern to his team's play on the pitch, there's no real pattern to his seasons um, other than you can generally count on one of these sort of games when things do get difficult and that buys him a couple more games and then you see where you go from there. His teams are quite streaky and, and it wouldn't totally surprise me as much as this would go against logic if United did actually get a result against Liverpool, because that's the sort of thing that my United do under Solskjaer is they go on these crazy runs that don't really make sense. But yeah, it, it's it's difficult to... I think Solskjaer generally has improved this team. They have got better over time, but it's to chart it would be really weird. There'd be a lot of peaks and a lot of big dips as well. Yeah, my, my read on it is that, to Graham's point, I think Ole has a certain situation that benefits him or that works well for him, and that would be backs against the wall, the pressure is on. And I think that's kind of who he was as a player, and it was about evaluating what teams were doing in-game and then coming on in those final minutes and making something happen based on what he'd seen before. And I, I do wonder if it takes going down to Atalanta to fight, to trigger that fight back and it requires that intensity to be increased but then there are times when I think that is the case from the start and I think about that Leeds uh, victory that Joe was mentioning earlier and I do wonder if there's an idea that like hey this is a Bielsa team we know they're going to be all over us we've got to be really smart and if you can sort of approach the game with that level of we've got to have the focus and intensity because this team is going to be at us I think that's when you see them respond Liverpool would be a case for that in this weekend. And then you have other times when they are playing a team that they feel like they should be really comfortable against. And I just wonder if that's when Ole isn't able to get that response, isn't able to get that fire going because he is kind of avuncular and is friendly in the locker room and kind of about keeping the squad harmony if harmony doesn't help when it's a team that's just sort of sitting deep and making you do something. It's like it's like he struggles with positive pressure. Like negative pressure brings the best out of him. But yep. any positive pressure where it's like you are good, go and be good, that is the point that Manchester United falter under Solskjaer. We just need Robin Williams' character from Goodwill Hunting. Is what you're saying? Just to wrap <laughs> some arms around him. It's, it's not, not your, your fault. fault. Yeah. It's not your fault. You're good enough. You're good enough. <laughs> yes. I just like don't s- just don't send him my way uh, with those okay. hugs. More hugs. <laughs> it was Thirty Rock, by the way. That quote is from Thirty Rock, uh, the one that started the show about ten second hugs. Excellent. 
Excellent, excellent stuff. <laughs> uh, one quick note on Atalanta, Joe. Do they mark anyone ever? Uh, maybe they but mark it's... too much? Because... <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of these situations where they're stepping forward across the back line. And they're stepping forward in midfield. And if you take a break for a split second to catch your breath or you just get distracted or you're not fully engaged, you can get burned. And that happened to Atalanta a number of times. Now, on the opposite side of the coin, they also created real problems for Manchester United with that man-oriented style of defending. But Ryan, I certainly catch your point. This was not, especially in that second half, was not the finest example of Atalanta's defensive chops. Yeah, it seemed like they were there for the taking quite a lot of this game uh, because of their, you know, maybe, I wouldn't call it a lack of discipline, but interesting things they were doing at the back. Uh, but United made it a bit hard themselves, apart from in the second half where they made it joyous for the neutral viewer, which I am. A couple of other groups to quickly look at before we head off. Group G, a group with some American interest, of course. RB Salzburg getting a 3-1 win over Wolfsburg. The Austrians top the group with seven points. And Lille and Sevilla in the game you almost certainly didn't watch. A nil-nil draw there. And finally, Group H, Zenit and Petersburg got a 1-0 loss to Juventus at home. Uh, Kudoshevsky getting a last minute, one well, 86th minute winner uh, for Juve there. And finally, Graham Chelsea for Malmo nil two Giorgino penalty Giorginio penalties two of them Graham two can you believe it that'll be enough to get him the Ballon d'Or <laughs> it will indeed it will indeed do you think he's got a chance by the way I I do but in that weird way that like Luka Modric won the Ballon d'Or where if a team and a club you look for a player who's had a good club and a national team season yeah. and if there's an overlap there then someone gets pushed forward for, for from those two and he's kind of that candidate and that that seems to count for a lot in Ballon d'Or voting and I'm not sure that it should <laughs> he wouldn't he wouldn't be in my top three put it that way I, I don't recall his national team doing anything special this year and I don't to, uh, I don't like you to remind me if they did. <laughs> so uh, why don't we uh, pa- pause the pod there and say thank you very much, listener, for indulging us on this Champions League journey. Taylor Rockwell, you've been a superstar as always. Thanks, buddy. You two until the very end there when you forgot that they beat England pretty comprehensively. I'm surprised you didn't remember that. Uh, my sound cut up there. I think Taylor said thank you very much. Uh, Graham <laughs> Rutherford, thank you for having, you, uh, for having your presence here too. <laughs> no problem, right? <laughs> and Joe Lowry, a pleasure as always, sir. Oh, you got it. Until next time, listener, bye!